why would you wear wool when it's really wet outside? <laughs> so you just kind of smell like a, a dog friends and welcome to episode seven i actually checked beforehand this time of so poetry um i actually have a guest tonight which is great because i've been trying to talk with him for what like two months two months something like that we're both very important very busy people yes um it also didn't help that it was like the the holiday gamut from thanksgiving to new year's um which if you've been listening to my podcast you know I've been griping that it's very difficult to pin people down, because um, usually people are a lot more socially active than I am. Um, but regardless of that, I'm sitting with Andrew Sargis Klein. Hello. Um, we graduated from the same MFA, but not at the same time. Um, you were two years this year. after me? Yeah. Oh, but yeah, I think two years after you. Okay. Um, so for those of you listeners who have been with me since the very beginning, you might notice a, um, I don't know, a theme of the UB MFA people that I've talked to. Um, that is not intentional. The only reason that that has happened is because um, they're the poets that I have the most access to, and I know well enough that I would feel comfortable sitting down and talking to. Um, although I am trying to open up... Um, open up the the podcasting to people that I don't know, which I did with um, Steven Zarantz and Celeste Dokes. Um, Those were relatively fresh interviews. Um, And I do know of other poets or other like MFA programs and stuff or just other writers that I'm going to try to track down. Uh, But for the meantime, you're getting a taste of the MFA program. so, Andrew, um, do you want to introduce yourself, talk a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Andrew. I uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, went to school in Michigan, and then moved out to Baltimore following a job, laid off from job, stayed mm-hmm. here because it's cheap and wonderful, <laughs> um, and oh, fell in love, got married, got an MFA, and yeah. I don't know. Here I am on this couch. So yeah. this is the, that, that's that's my life. That's it. I can go home now. So why why Michigan for school? Or yeah, I mean, for school. I I applied to a bunch of schools and I had no idea where I wanted to go to school. And I always, it, in, in, as I've gotten older and occasionally hear a parent ask me about you know their seventeen year old in college, it just I just think I didn't know anything. <laughs> When I was 17 or 18 about something as important as where I would go to school. I mean, I was certainly lucky enough, privileged enough to have choices to, and I decided to just go to a big honkin' state school, University of Michigan, and um, that was a lot of fun and very different for me, and um, I was advised sort of not to go to a little liberal arts school, simply because everyone there would be like me, and Mm. um, I kind of, I liked that, because at Michigan I certainly found crusty hippie poets like me as well but i've right. I met lots of other other types of people which i was very grateful for hmm. 
Did you uh, did you go the English to creative writing MFA route, or did you study something totally unrelated to creative writing in undergrad? Uh, no, I majored in creative writing and art history, but toward the end of of my undergraduate, um, I became a serious newspaper nerd and figured okay. and figured I was going to be a journalist, an editor, <laughs> a, a whole a whole thing. Which is that was the kind of job that I followed out to to Baltimore. I was an editor at a startup web magazine in the in the fall of 2008 which was a really ripe time for new businesses and startups you know that was just where everything was flourishing and just the, the, the go-go 2008s mm-hmm. and so yes i was laid off and spent a few years being unemployed and underemployed and um I'd, I'd really lost my my creative voice it just was something that slipped away that i wasn't really paying attention to and um it kind of lay rusted by the wayside and, and falling in love was a pretty huge catalyst for, for bringing that back into my life. I mean, I, there, I graduated Michigan in 2000, at the end of 2007 and went, started university of Baltimore MFA program, um, in what, 2013. So 2012. So there was a big gap between undergraduate and graduate school. So it, it, I, I t- there was this big gap in my in my writing life, so and so yeah. between, um, like being I guess being laid off and starting the MFA, were you writing at all, or was it kind of intermittent? Intermittent. I mean, I have some 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 notebooks, some journals that had little bits of poetry here and there. It was the, the flame was still there, but it just was not mm-hmm. nurtured or a- at all. So it. It kind of came to life um, falling in love with someone who's a dancer, a choreographer, endlessly collaborative, interdisciplinary, and, and kind of being next to someone who's just a bonfire next to your <laughs> haggard little matchbook is, yeah. uh, is, is pretty galvanizing. And so that really, that really like set me on a, on a path that um, at first just sent me to, to write more, to go to readings, and that's how I met people who were in the UB program, uh, and okay. it kind of just things just kind of started piling on top of each other and I all of a sudden I was in a position where, yeah, I could go to UB and yeah, just have, I haven't really looked back. So this has been kind of like a past four years, maybe five have been this very discernible new phase rebirth or, or what have you of my writing life. Wow. So I'm, this is one of the questions. Um, so I'm assuming there was a pretty major shift between the stuff that you were writing in undergrad to the stuff that you, that turned into your thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, want to talk about it? Sure. I mean, I like, I guess like it. what, cause I like, I, um, for me, I did undergrad right into the MFA. So I've had a pretty solid track record of, um, like the major events that have shifted my poetry. And it's been like, they've not, like on the heels of each other, but every every couple of years, like something will happen, and it's a pretty big, you know, like it's a massive shift. And I, I have a kind of a catalog of, you know, like a pretty consistent catalog of all the all the changes that I've gone through. So with the huge gap, um, like was that I don't know. Like, do you could you see bits of your old style and new style, or was it sort of just like it's a it's your the voice is ju- it's a new voice i mean i don't know yeah i undergrad was very much 
you know, oh my gosh, look at all of these New York poets that are so amazing. <laughs> and, 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 and so, so, you know, Frank O'Hara, Robert Creeley, Kenneth Koch, you know, mm-hmm. both very masculine, but also with some, some softer, um, edges to them. And that sort of, you know, wittiness, that, that, that wordplay, that, mm-hmm. well, not really wordplay, but just, um, you know, the, the, I do this, I do that. But then someone like Creeley who really crafts each line, each stanza, like a sculpture. I mean, I, I really enjoyed those, those aesthetics. And so mm-hmm. when I kind of came, came back to po- writing poetry regularly, I think those, that sort of aesthetic was still kind of available to me as a sort of, okay kind of the, the, me, the, the meandering twist and turn, um, kind of conversational um but making those kinds of associative jumps uh, mm-hmm. with between image to image and um and i carried that kind of like into the, the the writing program at ub i i started to build on it a little bit more i my subject matter i think turned a little bit more serious i was exploring my own queerness before i even knew it as queerness i was mm-hmm. um definitely working on a sort of gosh i it's hard it's hard to think about it in these terms but a kind of angular poetry that sort of circles around what you're talking about that's kind of true for a lot of poetry i guess where it's not literally saying the thing it wants to talk about it wants to talk around it and um that that was really important to me and i and it was always important to me to to kind of that poetic voice to and kind of include the all of a sudden plain faced statement or, you know, this is good. Or mm-hmm. what I mean is th- those kinds of moments where you kind of reorient the reader into something more conversational and just kind of bring them back in and sort of not trying to take yourself too seriously while maybe still talking about something serious at the same time. So that, that was like kind of the voice I was sort of really kind of working in that kind of thinking of a poem as a sort of sculpted object, lots of N dashes, <laughs> semicolons. Right, yeah. And I love that stuff, but I, but there was a pretty big transformation that took place where I, as my thesis started to take hold, which is titled Breezewood, and it's all about this little town in Pennsylvania. Um, and all of a sudden I became very invested in poetry as research, poetry as history, um, looking at poetry that can kind of be a lot of different things mm-hmm. or, or stand at a, at an intersection um, of history and of time and place. Uh, some, you know, a collection like Blood Dazzler by Patricia Smith was pretty, yeah. it was pretty foundational in that regard and how it took, I mean, something as discernible as Hurricane Katrina using found text from newspapers or uh, a George Bush appointee uh, like transcribed remarks things like that and doing it in very small but subtle ways and just I don't know seeing that kind of poetry built out um, or or Patterson by William Carlos Williams Mm -hmm. this sort of epic and dense and weird collection that has these incredible moments of beauty buried in lists of sediment layers like it's (laughs) it's like I became very invested in in kind of almost not epic but a very almost like a research driven sense of poetry and yeah so that's kind of where i'm am right now hmm. and you got a rubies to continue your work on breezewood right? i did i did get a ruby artist grant to um yeah take that manuscript and kind of take it to 
it's sort of you could kind of think of it as kind of caught in between a chapbook and a full length. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, it could be a thin full length, I guess, in terms of where that manuscript is at right now. But it is has so many research elements to it that I couldn't finish all, couldn't really get into all right. of them while being in school and working full time. And I still work full time, but. Now that I'm not in school, I do have some more free time. And yeah, that, that grant will allow me to um, take a few research trips and, and build that out more. I have a couple of questions like popping in my head. And I'm trying to figure out which one's, which one's going to be first. Um, so it seems... Cause, so I, I don't know, listeners. Um, there have been, I've gotten people on my podcast that I've talked about like poetry with privately or in at like a bar or something before. Um, and there have been people that I've talked to that I've never talked poetry about. And it's always fun for me um, to try to like, to orientate myself with, an, with somebody else's style or way of writing. Um, because it's like, you know, I, I'm pretty solid in what I, what I do. And it's always, it's kind of, um, I don't know, it's like you're catching, like, something glints and it catches your eye, and you're like, oh, shit, there's this whole, like, other thing that I've never really thought about. Um, Because that being said, um, or all that to say, that it seems like you were much more, um, like, conscious and intentional about the way that you write. Um, Where I, saying saying this with respect to myself, that I I seem to write on a more... um, I guess like intuitive or unconscious mm-hmm. level where it's like stuff is just kind of like working out and then it'll pop up and I, it's like I don't know where the hell it comes from I don't feel like I have an active like a super active role in the crafting of a poem it's just it's like there's this thing that's coming out and I'm sort of like the avenue I'm the road that this thing travels down to come out but it from I mean I, I guess with like the for things being heavily researched um it seems like you have you have a you play a much more active role in like the the creation and the sculpting of the things that you write. Yeah, I think where I would sort of relate to how you described your process is when I, I when I hatch on to something that's important to me mm-hmm. could be identity, my mm-hmm. ownest identity. It could be Breezewood. It could and and I'll, I'll, speaking of Breezewood, I'll think of let's say geology mm-hmm. and. The research could just simply be, you know, looking at topographical pictures. It could be reading actual geological books about Pennsylvania, where mm-hmm. Greasewood is located. Um, and you're, I'm kind of, I guess, creating the stew, kind of the sort okay. of something that so. So, because the way you were talking about that kind of intuitive, let the poem come out. I mean, that's still gonna exist in some way for me, but I, I guess to speak broadly, I, it's easy for me to think in projects for lack of a okay. gentler poetic term like it's easy for me to to kind of have buckets in my head where mm-hmm. and those buckets can very quickly <clears throat> subdivide or combine to, right. depending and so breezewood became this this sort of multiple buckets of i mean the, the romance of highways and how they cut through mountains and show you all those layers of sediment it's about mm-hmm. kind of how things like something like american history is this whole well, specific to, to history in America where how it exists, especially in a place like Pennsylvania, where you have 
pre-revolutionary history. You have, you know, some of those local roads were created when George Washington was hacking down trees to 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 fight um, indigenous Americans. Like that mm-hmm. that kind of thing is really Im- important to me. And I think, and and, okay. and so writing about that though how that ends up coming out i'm not quite sure yeah what that looks like but i like to read about it i like yeah. to and in and, in and putting together that manuscript i mean i would just google breezewood or google random things and i one of the poems in that manuscript is actually just a travelocity review <laughs> by someone uh of a best western in breezewood and it's just this like really beautiful chunk of text that this total stranger uh wrote on the internet um the first line of that review is Breezewood shouldn't be here. And it's just this, and it, and it kind of talks about how Breezewood exists as this sort of, it's so I'll back up for a second. Breezewood is where I-70 and the Pennsylvania Turnpike and Route 30 all kind of meet in, in South Central Pennsylvania. It's this big hub of hotels and gas stations and it's kind of this gross thing but that's still set in this really gorgeous rolling southern pennsylvania right appalachian foothill type yeah. type landscape which so i i really am attracted to that kind of two opposed things mm-hmm. like a kind of stain of of gas and exhaust that's in really gorgeous natural splendor and uh and then all the history that's involved there so um I think I just lost. I lost my point. It's gone. Sorry, readers or listeners. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I guess in that respect, um, like going back to what you said about thinking in projects, I I think, um, I think that I work at unintentional projects, or like in retrospect, I realize that there's a group of poems that I was writing that are all kind of deal with the same thing. Going into it, not intending to them for them to all wind up about the same thing, but just sort of like after after I get through them, I'm like, oh, okay, these these all kind of work together. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I guess it was kind of intentional when I went to the um, the residency that I went to last October. I did a poem a day, and it turned into a collection. But like when I was writing the poems, I didn't you know I didn't think that. Um, like I wasn't intending that they would all be like grouped together. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know. But it was only after the fact and going back and rereading, it was like, oh shit, there's an actual like something. There's like a connection here. Um, and I have been thinking about doing a. And see, this this is where I run into trouble is that I can't, I can never figure out if I want projects that I think of to be poetry or music, or some weird combination of both. <laughs> Because I have, um, I've been wanting to do a series of something um, on like the first people to do stuff in space. So like the first guy to like, um, oh, what's his face? Um, he just died. Um, not, not Buzz Aldrin. I don't know. I think Buzz Aldrin has passed away. Okay, then I guess it was him. So it was like the first American to do an orbit, like Yuri Gar- Yuri Gagarin, the first like human in space. Mm-hmm. Um, dog, that yeah, dog, Laika, yeah. um, the first like African and woman, African American woman in space, like the first woman in space. Um, I got a, I picked up a, um, like a really thick nonfiction book about the Wright brothers, as sort of like because I wanted to do the Wright brothers and Chuck Yeager as kind of like an epilogue, because mm-hmm. like without them you wouldn't you wouldn't have like space travel, um, but 
I was actually thinking of doing that for the rubies, but then it kind of imploded when I realized that I didn't know if I wanted it to be poetry or music. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think that's that's the only project that if it turns out to be poetry, that's the only one that I would go into with like an actual intention of writing that stuff. Most of the, most of the other stuff that I write is just sort of like, it just kind of happens, and then... I think there's something important to that. I will say that thinking in projects mm-hmm. has its strengths, mm-hmm. um, but I think it's also can be limiting. Um, I think it can sometimes be very much ego-driven when you think in terms of <laughs> manuscripts yeah. and, and grand <coughs> things. Like it's it's very uh, it can be just a way of thinking with your ego and not really with your with like the pure creative part of your brain and so i mean ultimately you're gonna you're gonna work in whatever way works best for you and that is generally how how i think and just i do certainly do free writing i or just i write without a bucket i write without a, a, a literal thing in mind but usually that's still gonna end up in something that's kind of pre-existing in right. my mind and yeah it's I mean, I make all these folders in my Google Drive, you mm-hmm. know, uh, various groupings and various things. And they kind of get recombined, and a lot of them don't go anywhere, and that's fine. I mean, sometimes the project is just a loose framework, or project, just an idea is a loose framework for something that I start to write, and ultimately it's very different maybe from what that framework was. Right. I mean, Breezewood turned out to be a very different thing than what I how it, how I initially thought of that manuscript it still it became something very different and I mm-hmm. think um, when my that mode of thinking for me works best is when I have a, a strong framework that nonetheless allows me to improvise yeah. and to do, it's why I found the travelocity review like I would <laughs> never would have thought that right. my manuscript would even include just a pure chunk of found text mm-hmm. in it or um, th- you know th- quoting Wikipedia a bunch like I knew I was going to want to research but I didn't know that that's what research would look like right so yeah I think that's important to me is kind of having a road but you stop at the the scenic points yep (laughs) (laughs) well that's like I I try to live I I try to actively live that way and I, I think that for my friends that are much more plan driven it's kind of infuriating and it's actually it's kind of like eked into other aspects of my life where um i very rarely give like solid answers there's always i always want there or it, it tends to be that there's always some sort of like gray or some sort of wiggle room just in case like a built-in just in case um because i really don't like i I don't even think, I don't, like, I don't know where this came from, because I don't remember, like, growing up, I don't remember either of my parents being, like, hard and fast, like, you know, rules, sort of, you were doing this, and then this, like, my, my childhood wasn't super segmented, um, but I just, I kind of just developed to the point where, um, I, like, that type of, that type of constraint really, um, I feels like it, it feels like it stifles me, that there's always, I always like having, Maybe not an out. Like we were t- we were talking or, or earlier about um, my um, my type of introversion um, manifests in always secretly hoping that the plans that either I make or other people make with me are, get canceled. Um, to, you know, just like always wanting to just have that have that out. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't know. When I was doing the my the podcast that I recorded um, over the weekend, um, I realized like in talking about things, I was talking about like um, mental illness and in connection with creativity, and there was a lot of stuff that I was trying to make very very clear that it was opinion and it was like I, I it was this was not backed up by any research it was just like observation and just things that I thought about just to make sure that there was not like a hard like you know this is the way that it is because like I don't I don't know <laughs> I think actually thinking about it now I think that it, it probably came from when I left Christianity and was suddenly had was shifting from a belief system in which I had a handle on maybe not everything, but like the important things of like, you know, this is how you get to heaven. Heaven exists. This is what, you know, this is the path that you follow to when I left it suddenly being like, ah, it's like it, uh, it could be any, it could be anything. And I really, I don't know. And okay. I, okay. Um, <laughs> I um I didn't really have a segmented childhood, but my my father is a documentary film producer. Oh wow! So, a lot of research. I mean, this is mm. someone who I mean, he history is his uh, I would say his wheelhouse. But I mean, he's done documentaries on everything, on structural engineering, on nanotechnology, on architecture and and ancient history. I mean, he's he's someone who loves to dive in and just learn new stuff, which is. I definitely got a chunk of that. Mm-hmm. And so Breezewood was kind of my, in some ways, me kind of having a research project in my head. Oh, but, okay. then, but then letting the, you know, as I was saying, kind of let it, letting it just go on tangents and, go and, 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 and kind of improvise inside of there. And that's, I mean, with this grant, going to keep doing that, going to go deeper into the primary documents of that research, <laughs> but, just, but just keep building it out because... I mean, I, um, like when it comes to my reading habits, Mm -hmm. I almost exclusively read poetry and nonfiction and specifically like biography. (laughs) And and, well, I've definitely diversified a little bit since then, but like for a long time, that was pretty much all that I read. Not my, my fiction reading definitely needs to be a lot better. I'm so sorry to our fiction listeners, fiction writing, reading, loving listeners, but I don't do not do not have enough fiction in my life. In part because I sort of find poetry and really well-written nonfiction to be very similar in their magic. And, I mean, whether it's something like John McPhee writing about the geologic history of North America or, um, who's that guy who wrote that triple three-volume biography of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, just, he just finished it. Errol Morris. Edmund Morris. Edmund Morris. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just really fanta- fantastic uh, nonfiction just has a certain spell quality about it where you just sometimes can't believe that this is true. Um, that woman who wrote, I'm blanking on her name, Natural History of the Senses. Oh, yeah. Which we read in yeah, cre- yeah. Cre- Creativity, mm-hmm. uh, the, one of those intro classes at the UBMFA program. Um, like that's so special to me. Um, not that fiction can't be special. Fiction can be very, very special, but I guess I love history. I love facts. I love that there are difficult things to handle and you know, that's, 
my Bruisewood manuscript is kind of this big testament to that that part that part of my sensibility. So this leads me to another question, um, and I th I think that I may have picked up how you might answer this, but I'm curious to see how you would actually answer this. Should I write it? Did you write it down? On the board? <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> no, we're not going to do a match game style. Um, how? I mean, I'm I. Assume that there's probably um, a myriad ways that you employ poetry, but like if you could if you could pick out like a, the big ones or at least the ones that feel the most immediate to you right now, how how do you use poetry? Like how, what do you what what do you use poetry to do? Or like how does it? How do you? I don't know. I can't. I've been trying to think of a better way to ask that than just so how do you poetry? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I was thinking a lot about this and try not to I try not to overthink about it prior because it's I mean it's a question that I think for anyone most people would have multiple answers. Um, I'll start by talking about a lot of the writing I've been doing since okay. Breezewood, even though Breezewood's an ongoing thing. Um, in that research process, a glimmer that caught my eye was the form of prose poetry. Uh, I had never really, had never really done prose poetry before. Just all of a sudden, seemed like this very obvious thing to me. This really, like, <laughs> I have discovered prose poetry, and yep. no one else has done it, and I am so special. Um, I had, a, I had that moment with haiku a couple of years ago. Yes, I am the most unique writer ever. Mm -hmm. um, realizing this, that sort of power of. I guess taking one's poetic voice and just going away from line breaks and going into a more prose quality and it started in Breezewood as as sort of myth making and I was creating mm. these sort of surrealist myths of how mountains came to be or how highways were born from the sky or this sort of just counterbalancing some some you know actual scare quotes research with a sort of you know poetic research of of why these things mm -hmm. how these things in our cultural imagination take on a life of their own taking that sort of style into i've been writing a lot i mean to simply put it about myself but in a way that's more exploratory in terms of childhood memories that are important to me but then pairing them with I want to say archetypal imagery, which I'm just barely starting to scratch the surface on. Okay. My partner, Lynn Price, does a lot of, uses, incorporates a lot of archetypal imagery in their dance and choreographic practice. Um, so that's been really important to me. Using poetry, I've been using this kind of prose poem type form to self-investigate, to come closer to things that are important to me, whether, and it's it can be very simple, like why... Why are my memories of the beach important? Mm -hmm. Why are my memories of family or divorce or happiness and baseball or sadness and bullying? Like, why, like you know, not just like, why are they important? But what does that importance look like? And, and the power of kind of getting to choose between that sort of quote unquote poetic voice that could be surreal and absurdist or just bouncing around or... Um, or something more straightforward that's kind of just memoir. Poetry is memoir where you're just writing down your memories. And mm -hmm. I, a really huge influence on that was reading 
Sarah and the Existence of Fire by Sarah June Woods, uh, who I believe now um, she refers to herself as Moss Witch. That was a really powerful collection of poems. Sarah and the Existence? Sarah and the Existence of Fire. Um, Just a really important collection of work to see um, someone sort of string what, I mean, I interpreted it as a sort of very personal narrative that could be as simple as talking about the speaker with with their dog or but then it could just all of a sudden turn very magical and surrealist and that that was just a really powerful thing to to, to read and to experience and so um that's been a really important tool for me it's it's something that actually distracted me from from breezewood research like when i found it in the middle of writing about breezewood and i mean it introduced a whole other element to to that manuscript that i didn't even know was coming and right I, yeah. I would have i had no idea that that's what that's what would come out or all of a sudden i um, I think of the headlights on a car as dreaming about the moon or think just things where you start to piece like in researching how in, in filling myself with research it opens me up to those other avenues so um, so that kind of prose poetry form has been really important and, and by extension genre bending I mean okay. I, it's I sometimes jokingly say that I've used prose poetry to backdoor my way into sending fiction submissions places which I have done once it had typos that was that was a mistake but um, I uh, that's been a really important thing for poetry for as as, as a as self-discovery and narrative building self-mythologizing and um, hmm. yeah I think I sort of went off on a tangent there on your question, no, no, no. but that's, that's, that that's what's been most in the forefront of my mind, and I, I'm kind of looking forward to doing the more on-the-ground research for this other manuscript, but the manuscript I'm working on now <laughs> is much more uh, of this kind of long prose poetry form. So are the two poems that were recently published by Big Lux, Big Lux yeah. indicative of the stuff that you've been... Both. Like, it's actually a br- so <laughs> the the two the two poems that are just published in Big Lux are two poems from the Breezewood manuscript, and one okay. of them is this sort of very like lyrical prose poetry um, called Self Portrait as the Moon, the Headlights Dream, um, where it sort of embodies a headlight sort of, and um, the other the other poem is simply called Self Portrait, and it's just a much more like fragment fragment like poem of kind of it was, it, was, it was a poem that sort of started as the beginnings, the beginning lines of different poems that didn't quite lead to full poems oh, themselves. Okay. And it kind of, so the way that poem, I mean, it's called self-portrait, but you kind of repeat in your head self-portrait before each line. Um, and so they kind, it's kind of a good example of the, the, the two different okay. ways of writing in, in Breezewood, that manuscript, but just in my writing in general. So, yeah. Cool. So it was, you were you answered close to how I imagined. <laughs> well, because like bringing up like with with your father and doing um, documentary work, like talking of you the way that you were talking about Breezewood, that's what it was. That's what it made me think of. And kind of within nested, I guess, within the whole like poetry as documentary, there is poetry as investigation because that's what like documentary documentary ing. Um, documentary making, there we go. Like you have to do 
like the research or the investigation before or like the 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 process of the investigation is the process of like the documentary or it's like the documentary leads you to some to some place of um like greater knowledge of a subject or um i don't know like a, a shift in at least a shift in view if not necessarily like a a, in, a um influx of knowledge um, it can be ambiguous too like right that's, well that's so yeah like a documentary generally will or you know a not you know a book of history is generally more like here's here are the facts yes yeah, like right? these are the things that happened and there's no there's no real editorializing one way or another it's yeah. just kind of the, the presentation of information and then it's up to the the audience or the viewer or the reader or whoever mm. to kind of like figure out for themselves what this means right. all and all the different levels like what does it mean for them personally what does it mean for them in the context of you know like where the United States is as a or America is as like a world power versus the history of the world and the confluence of sure. you know or even or even when it does editorialize it's by and large at least when it's good showing its work and and <laughs> and, and, and and poetry gets to kind of touch on a lot or at least the poetry that I that I really like to write it's gonna it's gonna touch on a lot of different things and so that that it might not be such an obvious arc you know right. um it's not quite such a like five paragraph essay kind of thing and mm-hmm. uh and Ooh. Uh, yeah right. i would like to see listeners anybody out there do somebody write a poem as a five paragraph essay i want to see this i don't know what it looks like or what it will look like but i want to see it there's thesis statements um supporting evidence in each the uh, middle three se- right? so yeah, each subsequent stanza paragraph Somebody out there do make this happen and then email it to me and I will post it somewhere so everyone else can read it. <laughs> because Lord knows I'm not going to do it. <laughs> hmm. It's really, it's interesting. Um, like I've been thinking about, I personally have been thinking about like how I employ poetry or like what, like at, at the very core, what it is that I try to do with my art. Um, I, I had I mentioned this in, in the other podcast, but there was um, a young woman who bought two books at Art Market because I was I was selling stuff there, and she sent me an email um, at the beginning of last week, just like telling me her kind of her experience with reading them, and then she like thanked me for the work, um, and at one point in it, she said, um, actually I can bring it up because I don't I don't want to to botch um, to botch her words which I'm pretty sure that I did over the weekend in my podcast um, yeah so right towards the end of the poem she says thank you for allowing me and others to feel less alone and that's a that that was a mat like a I don't know like it I realize that I, I seek, or like I, I seek out art that makes me feel less alone. That like that is that is the major impetus of, of why I'm I'm a consumer of poetry or, um, like visual art or especially music. It's like I I'm seeking things that that have, that I can sense some sort of resonance that I experience, um. 
and I think that I produce art for the same reason. Like, not so much that I'm reaching out to find other people, but I'm throwing stuff out there to let others know. It's like I'm I'm light, like I'm putting the candle in the window to let others know that it's like there's like somebody's here. If like if you're looking, if you're wondering, if you're curious, if you need to just know that somebody else is out there, like somebody else is out there. Yeah. Um, and I think in that sense, for me, um, I don't know. It's like there's a there's a personal there's kind of like two two degrees of this for me. I think that on, on a personal level, um, poetry for me is a lot of like, or just my art in general is a lot of me using it or employing it to figure out and get a sense of my surroundings. Um, so like uh, the way that Daredevil can see using like echo or like mapping things out using sound. That's kind of how I use poetry and music is that I'm in, in a changing of space or changing of context. Um, I send the poetry out to try to process stuff. Um, it's just on like a personal level. But then as it, when I'm like giving it out in a sense of like when I'm, when I upload my songs or when I, you know, like do, when I publish poems, um, in that sense, it's like, then I'm sending it out to like have that kind of guidepost or that little like something there for if anybody else comes along like oh somebody was like somebody came by here before or you know like somebody was following this a similar path that i was following mm -hmm. um which is interesting that it's like that it feels like it's like at least for my own like my own personal uses with with poetry and like the it feels like it's very close to kind of poetry as investigation but there's like it's it's like the next room over from that I think you're, what you just said you said a lot of really wonderful things there. It kind of made me think a little bit of what I discovered that part of my writing is can be <coughs> instead of inside out, mm -hmm. out, it becomes sort of outside in, mm -hmm. where the world that we live in, whether it's you know trees and sidewalks or public policy and politics and, and wars and history and science, you know, all those different things that kind of create this, the, that, that outside in effect of, you know, you're existing with a confluence of a billion different decisions, mm -hmm. developments, sadnesses, successes, like that in some ways that makes me a little bit less lonely when I'm interacting, mm. when I'm reading poetry or writing poetry that is kind of actively kind of trying to hang on to almost everything at once. Right. When I read very deeply, you know, kind of that interior emotional narrative type poetry that I, that I still write myself for sure. I write it less than I used to. I read it a little bit less than I used to because it honestly makes, even though someone else is writing it, it can often focus for me my own loneliness. Be not often the better it is, <laughs> the more lonely I feel. But not, or I mean, maybe we can differentiate between loneliness and solitude, right? Mm -hmm. Like it can def it can have a sort of annihilating effect where I feel it's just, it's just me. It's, yeah. it's just me. And so when I read, when I engage with work huh. that. Like I, want, I wanted to mention this work earlier, um, this book called um, Turn Me Loose, The Unghosting of Medgar Evers. 
um, is this really, really beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I'm blanking on the, uh, the author, um, Frank X. Walker. And so, I mean, it's, it's a collection of poems about, about this um, civil rights activist who was murdered. And with that relatively, you know, straightforward, if, if, if heartbreaking framework, you know, you get to, you read poem, these are poems about American history. These are poems about struggle. And it's just another dimension that's, that's so important to mm -hmm. me. I think, um, I don't want don't want to make this political or anything, but I, <laughs> but I just think we're never at a lack for context. We're never right. at a lack for situating ourselves at any point in history as being the end result of so many other things. And my, you know, weird internal landscape static narrative isn't going anywhere, but I, I get so much, um, I get a lot of, in some ways, affirmation from reaching out and trying to look for those intersections, for looking for how to how to write about how we got to where we are and whatever we were talking about. I mean, right? Yeah. yeah. Or take take a novel like Beloved that mm -hmm. just is, you know, it's this tremendous thing that is it's history and magic and it's all these different things happening at once and you know that's i'm so attached to that kind of work that that work is so important to me and because it's very easy for me for the introvert in me just to be only interior and, mm -hmm. to, and to worry about the right placement of the the m dash and the line break and that, i still love that kind of poetry and love to write that kind of poetry but it's recognizing that that is just one one part of that yeah. has been a pretty really important realization over the past couple of years in sort of that almost like needing to have other projects other buckets that pulls me out of my head because right, yeah battling depression anxiety well, i won't say battling but living with <laughs> right those things having in some ways outlets that are not really interior at all can be very refreshing because yeah. i don't have to deal with that whatever is happening inside well or at least not directly yeah. <laughs> deal with it yeah. well that i so this i thought of what you mentioned or what you were talking about it makes me think of um i feel like with a lot of um like internal emotional like self-narrative poets it feels like they are kind of like a vacuum where it's like they suck up stuff from the outside but they use it it's like all the stuff that they're talking about from the outside they're really talking about themselves um and i first i think i first picked up on this in betsy's class where we read um it's actually sitting on my shelf we had a, um, a collection of jane Kenyon's poetry mm -hmm. um and like I didn't, I didn't grow up as in like a young kid, but I, I cut my poetry teeth on Mary Oliver, um, and I, I saw I was beginning to see a lot of similarities between Kenyon and Oliver, but there's a major one of the major differences that I saw was, um, whereas Mary Oliver, um, like describes like puts herself out in the natural world. And describes the natural world. It's like she's not talking about the stuff that's on the inside of her. I mean, she's talking about herself insofar as that, 
you get a sense of how she thinks and how she sees by how like what she mentions and how she mentions it. But it's not it's like that's not she's not the um though there if there's an eye in those poems which they're oftentimes like she'll talk about it herself it's, it feels like it's a lowercase eye. It's like it's not she's not the point of the poems. The poem is the, is the description and the kind of like situating the reader or like sharing the experience of being out walking around you know in this place whereas with Kenyon it's it felt like she turned to nature and she turned to like the natural world and the descriptions of all these outside things because there was comparable stuff on the inside of her that the only way that she could talk about what was on the inside of her or gain the vocabulary to talk about what was in the inside of her was to talk about what was outside so it's like all of those poems even though they're not necessarily about her it feels like there's always that implied like like this is this is me yeah i mean the choice i mean the regardless of medium what you choose to to put in your art i mean it's a choice you know i mm -hmm. i'm not trying to dispat with my breezewood manuscript i'm not trying to dispassionately write about highways and <laughs> and, and trucks and things i mean the, there's a romance to it that's right, yeah. important to me and mm -hmm. so yeah i think you know i actually just the other not too long ago read oliver's what the living do which is just oh yeah so devastating and I, that's unfortunately like that is what I know really of mary oliver mm. is that book which i feel like is very much capital i like here is a very devastating trajectory of of growing up and losing it. it's it's a very hard read um but a very important read i think for a lot of people to uh for, i think it's a very important book of poetry oh, just Wait. Thinking, thinking about it feels very heavy is that okay never sorry i there's a there's a marie howe book that wait is that marie howe i think that's marie howe okay it is totally marie howe okay my bad because i was like i was thinking because it's kidding. like <laughs> i read that i read chunks of that years ago and i definitely it's like i was i was feeling like the echoes of just like the jesus Christ. see because you're talking about mary oliver having like a lowercase i and i'm thinking uh <laughs> i don't know yeah so i was thinking um do. So this is this is like a go-to poem whenever somebody asks me. Um, sorry, I apologize if you can hear me typing. I have the the mic set for OmniSound, so it's picking up fucking everything. We're not very professional. No, here. I'm. If if you've been hanging on to um, so poetry for throughout year one and now year two, you know that professionalism is very low on the docket for me. Um, but and I've I'm I've mentioned this poem. I think I've read this poem a couple of times. But whenever whenever somebody asks me what like to name like like my I don't know just like to name an awesome poem or to name there was one guy at Bookfest who told me to ask me to name like the best poem or like the the to name to tell him the best poem and it, like with the whole sort of I don't want I hate giving hard answers. It's like um. I can tell you one that I really like. <laughs> eh. um, Let's hear it. So this is this is Orion by Mary Oliver. Um, and those of you in the northern hemisphere that are experiencing winter right now, you sh well, at least, yeah, I guess, 
well, Northern Hemisphere in the United States area. I don't know if people on the other side of the world can see him, but Orion should be out. So go outside and look at him if it's night. Um, if it's not night when you're listening to this, wait until it is and then go out and look at him. But anyway, this is Orion by or Orion by Mary Oliver. I love Orion, his fiery body, his tin stars, his flaring points of reference, his shining dogs. It is winter, he says. We must eat, he says. Our gloomy and passionate teacher. Miles below in the cold woods, with the mouse and the owl, with the clearness of water sheeted and hidden, with the reason for the wind forever a secret, he descends and sits with me, his voice like the snapping of bones. Behind him, everything is so black and unclassical. Behind him, I don't know anything, not even my own mind. So she's, she's in the poem. She's there. She says I and me a couple of times. But in reading that, all the times that I've read that, I feel like it's, like, it's lowercase. It's, it's like, it's not, the poem's not about, she just happens to be there in this experience, but the poem's not, like, the poem's not about her. She's just, like, the vehicle. And which is something that I, um... <laughs> I first discovered, first personally discovered in haiku, that like if you if anybody out there is looking for um, a type of poetry in which the speaker or the writer of the poet poem has the most minimal footprint, haiku is one of the best things that you can read. Because <laughs> um, there are some like I think there's a I think it's Isa it's either Isa or Shiki. Um, where the haiku is, um, I think it's, don't worry, spiders, I keep house casually. Um, and it's, so it's like, he's, he's there, but it's not like, it's not him. I mean, it is kind of him, but it's not, you know, that's not really the point. The point is to, and I think I've mentioned this before as well. Um, I don't think I've mentioned it to you. So if, I, I don't know what your, what your degree of, um, of exposure or experience with haiku is, and I don't, I don't Relatively mean minimal. Okay, so hopefully this will not be a a mansplaining, um, but the best description of haiku that I have come across, I believe it is in the haiku handbook written by, oh, I don't remember his name, and I feel bad about that, but just Google haiku handbook and you'll find it. Um, he he mentions that um, haiku is. So like you, you have an experience, or the, the haiku poet has an experience, and the haiku poet realizes that, oh shit, I can't, I cannot tell you what I felt in, in response to this experience. Like what I felt exists in some place beyond words. But I can accurately describe or depict what I experienced, which led me to this feeling. So I'm going to do that, and I'm going to share that with you in hopes that it engenders a similar or like corresponding feeling in you so in essence i'm sharing my feelings with you but in a like in a roundabout sort of way um and i've also read i don't remember where i encountered this but um there's an idea that a lot of haiku poets hold and a lot of haiku scholars hold that a haiku is only like a written haiku is only half of the poem the poem is completed when somebody reads it and like fills in the kind of like super sparse 
um, very specific framework with their own experiences and it really like they color and they fill in the rest of the world I feel like that's a I don't know a lot of poetry could have that as the a lot of poems have in the second half I would like to read a poem do that it is very much not a haiku um, it's by this and it's a little bit long so forgive me or not um, and it's by uh, the poet Bridget um, and I've never said her name out loud before forgive me Bridget Pegeen Kelly um, Wait, how do you spell her middle name? P-E-G-E-E-N. Kelly. Um, she passed away in October, <coughs> and I had no idea who she was until she passed away when all of, all of these poets I love and admire were, were <coughs> posting about it, and I came across this poem called Song that I would love to read to you. <coughs> Song. Listen, there was a goat's head hanging by ropes in a tree. All night it hung there and sang. And those who heard it felt a hurt in their hearts and thought they were hearing the song of a night bird. They sat up in their beds, and then they lay back down again. In the night wind, the goat's head swayed back and forth, and from far off it shone faintly, the way the moonlight shone on the train track miles away, beside which the goat's headless body lay. Some boys had hacked its head off. It was harder work than they had imagined. The goat cried like a man and struggled hard, but they finished the job. They hung the bleeding head by the school and then ran off into the darkness that seems to hide everything. The head hung in the tree. The body lay by the tracks. The head called to the body, the body to the head. They missed each other. The missing grew large between them until it pulled the heart right out of the body until the drawn heart flew toward the head, flew as a bird flies back to its cage in the familiar perch from which it trills. Then the heart sang in the head, softly at first and then louder sang low, sang long and low until the morning light came up over the school and over the tree, and then the singing stopped. The goat had belonged to a small girl. She named the goat Broken Thorn Sweet Blackberry, named it after the night's bush of stars, because the goat's silky hair was dark as well water, because it had eyes like wild fruit. The girl lived near a high railroad track. At night, she heard the trains passing, the sweet sound of the train's horn pouring softly over her bed, and each morning she woke to give the bleeding goat his pail of warm milk. She sang him songs about girls with ropes and cooks and boats. She brushed him with a stiff brush. She dreamed daily that he grew bigger, and he did. She thought her dreaming made it so. But one night, the girl didn't hear the train's horn, and the next morning she woke to an empty yard. The goat was gone. Everything looked strange. It was as if a storm had passed through while she slept. Sorry, reading this off my phone. While she slept, wind and stones, rain stripping the branches of fruit. She knew that someone had stolen the goat and that he had come to harm. She called to him. All morning and into the afternoon, she called and called. She walked and walked. In her chest, a bad feeling, like the feeling of the stones gouging the soft undersides of her bare feet. Then somebody found the goat's body by the high tracks, the flies already filling their soft bottles at the goat's torn neck. Then someone found the head hanging in a tree by the school. They hurried, to, they hurried to take these things away so that the girl would not see them. They hurried to raise money to buy the girl another goat. They hurried to find the boys who had done this, to hear them say it was a joke. A joke. It was nothing but a joke. But listen, here is the point. The boys thought to have their fun and be done with it. It was harder work than they had imagined, this silly sacrifice, but they finished the job, 
whistling as they washed their large hands in the dark. What they didn't know was that the goat's head was already singing behind them in the tree. What they didn't know was that the goat's head would go on singing, just for them, long after the ropes were down, and that they would learn, and that they would learn to listen, pale after pale, stroke after patient stroke. They would wake in the night, thinking they had heard the wind in the trees, or a night bird, but their hearts beating harder. There would be a whistle, a hum, a high murmur, and at last, a song. The low song a lost boy sings, remembering his mother's call. Not a cruel song, no, no, not cruel at all. This song is sweet, it is sweet. The heart dies of this sweetness. God damn, right? Jeez. You know, so there's no I yeah. in that poem, but oh, whew, it just, and it's obviously many more words than a haiku, but it just has that sort of, that childlike, well, childlike story that involves a child and has that sort of very simple sentence structuring, mm-hmm. you know, but and with that sort of storyteller's voice, you know, listen, right. no, but listen. Mm-hmm. That, that quality of just talking to someone and there's so much filling in that happens. And I, I talk talking with my partner about the ending, which to me is incredibly dark, yeah. <laughs> which they did not necessarily see as dark. Um, not that there isn't, it's it just what you obviously people interpret and experience poems differently. And so, you know, what you fill in for a poem like that is just, I think that's just really special. Yeah. And I didn't mean to hijack the haiku conversation, no, 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 no. but but you talking about that with a haiku made me think of that kind of poem that sets up something using simple relationships like a child and a pet, mm-hmm. you know, bullies or boys doing stupid shit, you know, violence, male violence, things like that. And just it's a rather simple narrative that you get to fill in so much of, you know, what what those sort of archetypes mean to you. And, um, yeah, that's just that kind of, right. I mean, when I, when I, that, I read that and just wanted to write a thousand things about it and I haven't been able to write a single one yet, <laughs> but yeah, that's a very So it's, poem. it's interesting that <coughs> maybe not, well, maybe not interesting. Um, given like where you're headed with your writing right now, that if, I had not been looking at your phone while you were reading that. I don't think that I would have thought that it was a poem. Like, it, it felt, like, the way that you spoke it and the, the way that, like, the, um, the way that it was constructed, it felt like a, like a story, like, yeah. a, pe- like a piece of prose. Mm-hmm. Um, which is always, like, I've, after encountering, um, like, flash fiction, um, really, really short lyrical nonfiction essays... Um, in prose poetry there's that sense of like what the hell makes a poem like why if you're if you're looking at it like a prose poem like why why is this a prose poem instead of you know not a prose poem right yeah like instead of and if it's especially if it's something that's like autobiographical or something that's um, I guess more maybe not emotion not not just emotionally true but like more true than not true mm-hmm. um, like what why would you call that a prose poem versus like a short lyric, like a short lyrical essay? Yeah. Um, and that poem actually, 
is not really written as a prose poem. It, t- it has right, line yeah, it breaks. has like line they're breaks. They're very long, but yeah. they're not. It is te- not with like justified text or anything. It does have line breaks. So. Yeah, and then that's that's also what like if you if you're writing. Um, I mean, I know that like with with Wordsworth, because I was just thinking about Wordsworth. Like you have like really well, poems that have really really long lines, but I feel like a, and more often than not back in the day with poetry that had long lines, it was due to whatever meter you were working on. There was like a, a segmented or a regimented sort of like, mm-hmm. um, there's going to be this many syllables and however many, you know, it could be just a crazy long line with that many syllables. But um, like, I, I feel like as we've moved away from, or as like most, um, I don't know, like popular or most of the, most of the writing that's, being read or most of the poetry that is being read nowadays seems like it's not um metered yeah i've read very little metered poetry and i also feel like i've read a lot of poetry that i mean you know can be very as someone who just messed up mary oliver and, 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 and mary <laughs> Henry Howe, um you know it feels like there's a lot of more narrative yeah coming back. right yeah um, but i i yeah. I I feel like the line break has become much more important as a as a tool for poetry. Like that's potentially one of the differentiations of like how like how the words are arranged on the page. Because when you're dealing with prose, you're not really concerned with like how words look next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because given any way that they're published, you could have like one sentence like on one line and then the next sentence and another line versus if it's pub like in one publication and another publication they could be one like they could be right next to each other on the same line mm-hmm. um so it feels like there's less importance given to like how how the words themselves are arranged in a in a space on the page whereas mm-hmm. with poetry there's much more of a consideration with you know it's like i'm breaking this line here for a very particular reason or a certain effect yeah um, and it would, I would be interested because I'm I'm been writing things down to to put in the description of the um, of the episode, and I'm I'm gonna find that poem and put it up, but like read it again and see if there's any sort of like to see if I can pick up any sort of intention with why the lines break when they do. Because mm-hmm. um, that yeah, I think there's some obvious intention in that particular poem, but otherwise it's just it's just <laughs> you know oh now's a good time to. Make right. a sentence go to the next line. Yeah, because I know, like, I've definitely written, I don't know if other poets do this, but I've definitely written poetry where um, I'm more concerned with, like, visually how long each line is. Um, and I want it to, to all the, the end lines to write, to be more or less the same, you know, the same size. So I have, like, a, a little block of a poem. Um, although I have noticed that I tend to break um, in like phrases or like because i mean as you hear now and i'm sure that you've picked up on many of my other podcasts there are sometimes spaces between things that i say when i'm trying to think of what to say and when i write poetry i tend to write in like short little phrases that would be probably what i would say before there'd be a pause of like a next Mm -hmm. thing so it's it's much more of like a breath sort of like rhythmic thing for me than any any other like meter or any you know. Yeah. Sometimes I'll break it intentionally to have a couple of like to have just a really fucking awesome line. <laughs> other times it's like, eh, it's like I this is how I this is how it 
it came to me in my head and like the pacing of it and this is how i want it to be I, this is the best way to to um carry over the pacing that the internal pacing that i got onto like yeah. the page i when it comes to when i'm working with a sort of free verse type of poetry with with the line breaks and the I, I was finding that for a while I, there was a certain <coughs> they were coming out a little bit similar you know mm -hmm. was, everything started to come in either in couplets or mm -hmm. triplets like everything mm -hmm. in the the length the line length tended to be about exactly the same and it kind of a real i mean developing a voice developing a kind of template is not a bad thing in any way uh I just found that it was, if not becoming predictable, but it was becoming a little bit repetitive and it was becoming a bit of a venue for a specific kind of poetry that I like mm -hmm. to write. And I keep talking. Yeah, there's, yeah, a, there's a poem that I, I want to, I want to read. He's going to the bookshelf find. guys. It's just me now. Um, when it comes to prose poems though, I definitely write them almost exclusively in a four column or four inch wide uh column with justified text um so that i'm essentially you know, he, uh, michael just mentioned blocks of poetry i'm totally talking as if michael has literally left the building right now um and and often my prose poems quite literally look like blocks they just look like squares of justified text and i find that when i'm writing kind of in you know not every sentence is necessarily a, a perfectly correct grammatical sentence it, i find that it's a good way for me to change up that rhythm to change up that kind of internal measure of that's a poet's own voice that's a you know that uh, that you often achieve through those line breaks those stanza breaks those breaths those pauses and so when i you know with with the pro with prose poems they often start as a few sentences and then another stanza if it's a few sentences then another stanza and mm -hmm. i start to kind of it's a way to get me out of a type of rhythm that I had become really familiar with that I've now realized I've kind of avoided for so long that I haven't really written that kind of poem in a while. And right. so I, maybe it'd be a good time to kind of switch back into that a little bit. So when you, um, if you were to, like, if you were writing, um, do you give certain, like a certain amount of pause weight for like a comma versus a period versus like a line break yes versus no. a stanza break? Okay. I will overthink it, pushing okay. things around <laughs> the page. I, I'm kind of of two minds and, and I am, I, in that I both think that a comma, a M dash, a, 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 stan a break can be so like terribly important. Mm -hmm. That can be just so devastatingly true and i also think that it can just really not matter that much well, if I meant, you oh. no i i, I yeah. agree but i meant when you're like actually reading them like if you're at a reading oh. when you're when you are um turning them into something that people hear um mm. if you if there's a line if there's a stanza break do you do you pause longer than you would if there was like a line break depends depends okay. on the poem and and i would say there's there's few for me <laughs> few editing devices as as effective as reading a poem in public at a microphone staring at those words and you're like don't need that word yeah. don't need that one <laughs> like line break here <coughs> i mean there's that's i i think even just if you're reading aloud in your room that can really mm -hmm. um especially you know if you're working kind of free verse 
uh, form to just, you know, what is your own meter? What is your own, Mm -hmm. what is your own voice? How is your own voice subdividing itself? And and when you, I think that there is in some ways going to be a sort of irreconcilable tension between how you read a poem that maybe has plenty of line breaks and things versus how you hear someone speak it versus how you experience it on the page because mm-hmm. that can often just have a very there's something very beautiful about the line the the space the negative space i mean that's like poetry as an object is really is really special and i mentioned way way at the beginning of this that we were uh like someone like um someone like uh, uh creeley robert creeley who just was so deliberate in how he broke up each line and it just created such beautiful mm-hmm. poems within poems and you're just not I don't think you're really going to get that when you're listening to someone read and I think that's okay well that's actually so I've, I've thought maybe not extensively but I've thought a fair amount about um, like readings and my poetry and how I write and how I want people to experience my poetry, which is a question that I will pose to you after I after I do my little spiel, um, and I realized, and I think I'm, I've pro- I think I mentioned this in the podcast, the last podcast that I did, that um, I I want I want to have complete control over um, how people experience my work, which is why I think um, like why I one don't pop, like I don't submit my poems really anywhere um and two why i i tend to work in like units of chapbooks um because that's like that's how i want people to experience these poems like i want them to be by themselves with this book um in just absorbing you know like the thing on the page and i i don't think i've ever enjoyed reading my own poetry aloud because when I because I I know that there are some poets that write to be intentionally write to be read aloud like that's that's the space that their poet that they want their poetry to exist in and that's how they want people to experience is to to be listening to these things Um, I'm very much not that person I I want people to just read like to be somewhere by themselves and read my stuff um and I, I was thinking, I don't remember where I was, but I think one of the, I realized that I think one of the reasons for that is um, I like having like one-on-one or maybe one-on-two conversations with people. I hate like being a part of a big group or a big crowd because I tend to, to take on the role of like observer or listener when there's a bunch of people. Because um, I feel like whatever role I could play or whatever I could add to the conversation is probably being added by somebody else. So I can just kind of take a step back. Um, whereas if when I'm one-on-one with somebody, it's like I, you know, there's a, I'm playing a very definite role in this conversation because without me, there would be no conversation. Um, and I would like to imagine that when people read my stuff by themselves, then we're having a like one-on-one conversation. Whereas when I'm speaking or I'm like, I'm reading my poetry to a, a group of people or like a, um, you know, like at a reading, um, I don't feel like I'm making a personal connection with anybody, like not one person in there. It feels like I'm just kind of speaking to a group and I really like, I don't, 
I don't for my for just my own personal devices. I don't want my poetry to be like encountered that way. Um, so, if you've thought about this, drop a pencil. I did think about this. Um, how do I? How would I would like my? Yeah, poetry like if to I mean be... not. I, I the question that I that I sent him was um, like, what is your ideal way that you would want people to experience your poetry? And then as a follow up, like, what is your ideal? Or how what how would you want your you how do you want to experience other people's poetry? And I I know that it's probably like a case by case thing, but if you could just like paint like is there is there one is there one particular way that with your own poetry that you would want some like the ideal way that you want someone to experience it? In outer space. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> um, I don't really I I don't know if I really came up with a I thought about this answer and I or this question and I never really came up with an answer that was particularly at least for the first half that was particularly satisfying. Um, you know, I yeah, I, I think it's maybe good. I don't yeah, I feel like I'm not really I'm, sure I feel like I'm probably a little too particular with like how I want I think that's 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 perfect. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for you, Michael. Um, in terms of how I like to experience poetry, I mean I when I mentioned earlier about, um, you know, there's a bit of a tension between listening to someone read poetry versus reading it on a page. I mean, that tension, I think, needs to be explored more in the sense okay. that I, I love readings. People stand at a microphone, read into the microphone, and walk away from the microphone that format is generally really boring. Yes. Um, I wholeheartedly agree. Even if it's a poet that I love, I might just be bored. Mm -hmm. um, it's, but I will go to readings the rest of my life because I do love readings. I do love the people at reading, you know, your community writing is such it's a like, solitary it's like, act. It's church for poets. Exactly. Well, the church with often too much drinking, but, um, <laughs> it, uh, yeah, but I, so I, I've always really enjoyed the performative aspects of poetry, particularly when it's either interdisciplinary or, or okay. kind of cross-genre. Um, <coughs> my partner and I started a, a, a very patient, let's call it a patient, uh, a kind of experimental performance series called States and Drives. There have been three over the past, I don't know, three and a half years. So we take our time putting on each was one. That, was that the performance that, was, that happened recently with... Lynn, or was that something else that she was uh, that, that they were doing? That was some, that was something else. We the last one was in January. Um, okay, and uh, we, that was a lot of that the sort of impetus for that kind of performance series. It's not just about poetry, but a lot of it was born out of this feeling of that sort of stale format uh -huh. of, of people at microphones, and and so I love when I see poetry and dance. Lynn is a dancer. Uh, when that when those are combined, you know, dance in some ways is, is a very ephemeral art. You see it, and that's and it, that's it. I mm -hmm. mean, yes, you can record it on video, of course, but you know, there's that sense of when you see live live dance, you'll never see that exact performance ever again same and thing I, and, and same I, with the theater yeah exactly and, I, and so and so we through either encouraging collaborations or or in how we kind of attach a theme to each to each iteration of the series we do try to push people into at least especially the poets of, mm -hmm. of you know think of it as performance art as theater as movement as something other than just standing at a microphone and reading out of your palms and so that's I I'm 
you know, for as much as I love research and archives and things, I also love spontaneity and collaboration and, and just that whole improvisational quality, uh, that that's also really important to me as well. I have um, there's a guitarist that I collaborate with. Our project his, name, his last name is his name is Gary Prince. So our our group name is called Klein Prince. <sighs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> really didn't know what to call it, so it's Klein backslash Prince. Um, and it's <laughs> it's sort of improvisational poetry and, and music together. Uh, and it's it's weird. It's 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 a little different. It's I'm not. It's not quite. It's not in the tradition of spoken word. Um, it's it's sort of a lot of free associate. Like I'll, I might I might have a poem that either I wrote or someone else writes, and then I sort of improvise on it, um, free asso yeah. free associating on it. But I also my microphone is running through a bunch of effects pedals, so I might loop a phrase over and over again to create texture those kind you know when we think of words as rhythm as texture i sometimes try to literalize that with effects and things mm -hmm. like that and and, and kind of work so are y'all are y'all both improvising at the same yeah. time okay mm -hmm. he wow. i mean he's an incredible guitarist so i'm very lucky to to work with him um he he's the head of the jazz department at the L levine school in dc oh damn um yeah dude's got dude's got chops um but but it's, it's an outlet for us to really experiment and that's in, in the like the poetry that i sort of create in when i when I, when we when we work together is so different than the poetry that i write on the page and and sometimes i try to take the poetry that's on the page and use it as a jumping off point for our performances to make success sometimes i write down the things that i kind of associate myself into from our like rehearsals or performances i write that stuff down and it doesn't look right it doesn't feel as good or, or it doesn't feel as 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 urgent as when i maybe listen back to a recording and i i like that feeling i like that feeling that poetry can't always just simply exist on a page it it, it, it has a certain fleetingness to it that um you know, I, I like to see that exploited and mm -hmm. it can in that sort and it's almost a melancholic feeling of it's gone or you can only sort of hear it in that one way or experience it in this in this sort of live aspect. And once you put it down on a page, it loses it loses something. Yeah. Um, as opposed to poetry that gains something when right. you experience it on the page. Like, yeah. we know, you, you could <laughs> looking at, you know, a haiku on its own page has a very I mean, there's a, a very perf I mean visual effect to that um, how you experience something yeah I, I hate I to, to all the people out there that um, that do either well not so much performative poetry because I'm I don't do performative poetry but I enjoy people who perf actually perform their writing um, but for people who do people out there who do readings um, <coughs> especially poetry Specifically haiku, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm the least on board with a haiku reading. Like I I want I I'm almost neurotically want to see them on the page so I can deal with them by myself because I I feel like there's you could read like fifty of them, man. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the more the merrier. Well, that's that's one of the things that I I really I've I have realized or I've come to realize is why I don't one of the reasons why I don't like readings is. I like to be. I like to have the option. I don't do it all the time, but I like to have the option to spend time with a poem. 
Um, like the one that I have open on my lap right now. When I read it in this book, I sat there for probably a good five minutes and just like, like what the fuck? And when, when I'm sitting there listening to somebody speak it, like I only have from the time that they speak that they're done with the poem until they move on to the next one to like get it. I, I usually am left with a kind of a, a taste or like a um, an impression of the reading itself, not any individual poems or maybe just like certain lines or certain images from each thing, but not the individual poems themselves. Um, which, in an, in a respect, I guess is is an interesting. It's like you're taking it kind of like a manuscript way, where it's like it's the reading is the thing, and it's not the poems in like that comprise it. It's the kind of totality of it. Um, but I don't know, like, I, especially with haiku, it feels like there's something that is, and I know that they were traditionally spoken, like all of, like, the, the rengu, or the, um, oh, crap. The term for the, the linked, like, the old Japanese version, like, the linked poetry that haiku kind of developed out of, maybe ringetsu, I don't know, um, whatever the official term is, like, all, when you had parties like that, you would speak. That the poems, you know, it's like you just, I think you would go around and not, maybe not a circle, but you'd kind of just go around in the group and people would just say them. Um, but I, I need to see them written down. Like there's, there's a spell that they have that when they're on the page, they, mm -hmm. I feel like it's intact. And then when I hear them spoken, I'm like, Fuck. It's like, that's not, I don't, I don't know if it's just, I don't, I have not come across somebody who has read poems or has read haiku in the way that I feel like they need to be read. Um, which is, so I will mention, um, do you know the poet Lee Young Lee? Um, he's a time, I believe book, he's Taiwanese American. Um, Book of My Nights? Yes. Oh, so good. And I'm starting to make my way through the, the wing, the winged seed. The winged okay. Seed, his, which is, is his like memoir. memoir. So yeah. he has a, um, he has a, he has a collection after the Book of My Nights called Behind My Eyes. And there's a poem in there called Have You Prayed? I could read it, but I won't. <laughs> Um, because there's on the uh, poetry.org, which I'm going to put this link up in the description, um, there's a recording of him reading it. And he, the reason, one of the reasons I asked you about, like, do you, do you put a particular amount of, like, spacing for line breaks or stanza breaks is that it feels like he does. And so he will, he will pause at the end of each line at the, like, with every comma, with every line break, with every stanza break, there's a, there's a certain, like, weight or like a certain like so many beats that he gives it um and a poem that i could probably read in maybe i don't know like a minute or so it takes him like three or four minutes to read <laughs> so i think i think lee young lee might be one of the few people that i could, if he read haiku i think that i would enjoy it um but it, plus he just he has that voice too that i feel like like i don't know i might start reading haiku in his voice now um <laughs> But yeah, I don't. I mean, a good reader, a good reading voice is hard to teach, if at all. I mean, I, I mean part of it's not really teachable. It's just uh, there. I've seen this woman, um, Kate Greenstreet, read a couple of times here in Baltimore. I'm blanking on the, her collection of um, poetry, uh, but she. <coughs> there's the cat. <coughs> you have a cat around here. She she does not like new people, so she will hide. And I think that she either got too hungry or was just fed up with being upstairs. Sure. Um, she, when I saw her read, she had this mesmer. This I don't know. 
I don't know what word other than mesmerizing to describe how she would, you know, she held, held this book, her book in her hands. She knew these poems backwards and forwards and would sort and they were very autobiographical in tone and so she would read a poem and and then she would sort of be looking away from the book and talking now that could have been her own anecdote it could have been an extension of the poem you didn't really know and then Mm -hmm. she then all of a sudden she was just flipping through the book and she would still be talking and look down at a page look up and then continue to flip the book while she was talking and that it, so she's 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 reading you her poems while also filling in with banter or yeah. side tangents and this way of just and you know it's you know it's hard to imagine a poet taking a like half hour or 20 I don't, I don't quite remember how long maybe 20 to 30 minutes worth of time and sort of continuously speaking yeah for the entire That's of time and you Jeez. and that kind of makes you want to pull your hair out considering how many readings you like have been to but you know, if you can, but like the way she pulls that off, and mm-hmm. think thinking of of someone like Lee Young Lee's taking all of the pregnant pauses <laughs> yeah. there are might make me want to scream the idea of it. But when I listen to it, it might be a totally different thing. Yeah. I'd also be fascinated to know if that's how he reads that poem. If he reads it that way every single time, I don't because sometimes you experience like as the poet, you're gonna especially yeah. when poems start to be very personal. In almost incantatory in in when you read them they can have a very different effect and sometimes yeah. I don't care if I'm reading something too fast if I'm kind of blowing through breaks and just and just I want to kind of shout it out and that you know the poem sometimes the poem wants to be something else when it becomes performed yeah yeah I, I feel like I don't I, I feel like as a reader I don't know if that's necessarily I mean that might be close to a performance but I don't know, like, I, I, I feel like Lee Young Lee is the type of person that, for him, like, a stanza break is so many, like, is, is, a, is a certain amount of time that you wait, or, like, a breath, or, like, so many, I don't know, like, if there's a there's a certain define, and it may... Checks his watch. And yeah, it's <laughs> like, there may be a little bit of a wiggle room, but I feel like for him, it's like, the comma, like, any, any time that, that anything that interrupts speaking, there's a certain amount of, like, of, of, of pause that you give it, um... Speaking of, so I, I think, I think as a, as a, as performers or as people who do things like audibly in front of other people, I think that there's a, there's a level of like captivatingness or that you need to have, like some ability that you need to have to captivate other people. Um, and Kendrick Kapelke definitely has it. The way that like... When she gives, I don't know anybody in Baltimore. Uh, Kendra is the head of the MFA program at, at um, the University of Baltimore, and if anybody has been is lucky enough to have seen her read somewhere, you will probably know what I'm talking about. But it, or if you know her, um, it feels like the readings are like any conversation that you have with her is what a reading feels like with her. It's like there's a level of engagement, but like personalness. Um, but also like they're inviting and it's like you just you you exist in this space it's like she has this weird way of making you exist in the present regardless of if you really want to be there or not it's like you just you're there and you know that you're there. like you're aware of being there um i was fortunate enough to see um jane hirschfield read at the awp i think in seattle okay and that was 
unbelievably amazing. Like she she has this presence. Um, I saw Ann Carson too at one of the AWPs, mm. and like as powerful as her voice is, like like as as powerful as her writing is, her presence was not very like commanding. Um, it felt kind of just like I mean it was it was a moment because like I told fuck it's Ann Carson reading, <laughs> but afterwards it was like oh this kind of felt like like any other reading. Um, and I've, I've recognized this in myself that I think, at least I perceive my, myself to be a not very captivating entertainer. Um, and I've been de- trying to devise ways that I can like, do my best to um, minimize my actual involvement in the performance of my art. Um, so like people reading my work somewhere by themselves, like that's great for me because I don't have to, I don't have to be involved. Like my involvement with that's done. Um, but I've been thinking about like performing, like if I were ever to perform, like I, I have, I do music on the side, both in a band and as like a solo project thing. And I've been thinking of ways if I ever did my solo project stuff, perform it live, like what can I do to minimize my, um, my presence and just make it about the music and i've been thinking of like either having the lights down really low having like a jet like one of the japanese room dividers that just like exists in front of me um maybe backlit so you can see my shadow and you can see the things that i'm doing but it's not like Mm -hmm. because i've been i think for me and this is this is what with with haiku um like a pretty driving force that i feel it's like even like the point the point of the haiku is to is to just prevent to present uh, to present the experience that you had um so haiku poets definitely if there's ever an eye it's lowercase and usually if it's like if the eye is there it's almost like a ghost um that like they it feels like they try to step so far away from the poem so it's just the experience so that you get just like just what happened to them um regardless of the, it's like almost to the point it feels like you just you kind of just happen these things that you happen upon and it's not so much crafted by somebody but just sort of like you you come into this this moment um and i would really love to do that with my music because when i perform i don't want it to be like i don't want people to focus on me i want them to just sit there and listen to the music and that like i might have to drag people kicking and streaming screaming into my concerts doing that because it's not really what a concert is right yeah i mean <laughs> guided listening experience yeah because because i've been thinking like i've been thinking recently a lot of like what um so in um when you you know tyler um i don't know if you know Anne, but i'm i'm in a band with with three with one of my friends and then someone who became my friend since i've been in the band with her i didn't know her before the band um but we've been we last band practice i've had we were kind of talking about like the the line between repetitive music as boring and repetitive music as meditative or like contemplative or or whatever and like where that line is and like what what is it that differentiates stuff between like this is repetitive and i find it boring versus this is repetitive but it makes it feels like a um like a rothko painting i just want to like i keep or like a um, like Japanese calligraphy stuff. It's like I keep just like falling into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was um, I spent New Year's Eve with my partner, um, and we watched the ball drop, and then subsequently watched a couple of performers because we were making fun of Ryan Seacrest and Jenny McCarthy. 
um, and they're they're staged like trash around them to make it look like they've been partying. But anyway, there are no Anderson Cooper and oh, Kathy God. Griffin. You know. <laughs> that's 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 the real shit. Right oh there. God, my mom and her husband love. Oh jeez, Anderson and Kathy. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a whole other podcast. A whole other thing, whole other um, podcast. But anyway, so we we saw a couple of performances, and I I realized that. Like, a lot of that music is really, like, boring to me as a musician. Um, but that's kind of the point. Like, it's not meant to be um, super technical or super intricate or, you know, like, whatever. It's meant to make... It's music designed to make people move. Because, like, that's the end goal. That mm-hmm. It's being played at clubs or being played kind of wherever. And it's like, the point of, the, of this music is to get people to dance to it. And if you have really intricate and like weird polyrhythms or like weird syncopation that people can't really figure out how to move to it's not really it's like you're not making effective dance music but if you're making music that you want people to just sit there and listen to and absorb and like think about and experience then it's like go ahead you know <laughs> it's like make this thing in like seven eight or like seven nine time with a like a syncopation on like the fourth you know it's like or like have have the drummer playing in one time to signature the guitarist in another time signature and the bassist in another time signature and you you um line up on every like sixth sixth measure but other than that everybody's doing you know yeah and i think that for me the bands that are repetitive but more on the meditative side of repetitive get more into like the intricacies or it's like it's a kind of a slow burn where every it's it's every time that they they make the loop they add a little bit of something and they change a little bit so it's they're constantly introducing new things to the music but it's never at the point where it's either overwhelming or just like just the same thing over and over and over and over and over again that there's like a i guess it's like in in the repetitive is meditative there's some sort of development or some sort of like you move there's a there's a definite sense of motion from one place to another whereas in music that at least i personally find like as repetitive as boring there's really no like you don't really go anywhere it's just sort of like you hang out and kind of you just like circling around the same spot um which as a musician that enjoys like more technical intricate musicianship i just find it's like i could listen to a saw at my wood shop and have more enjoyment out of that than listening to like like the latest britney spears single not to single her out don't knock don't knock britney okay um i mean that's like and that's something else i've thought about that like with with pop stars or with like um it's not, it's like the point of them, of like of their performance is not necessarily the music. It's to see them as performers. It's like they're much more, for me, it feels like they're much more on the side of performers than they are necessarily like musicians. Even if they are musicians, it's like they're, you go to see their shows for like a Taylor Swift show or like Carly Rae Jepsen or like Beyonce. It's like you go to see them for the fucking spectacle of the show not to sit not like a Sufjan Stevens concert where you, it's like you go there to listen to just whatever sh- crazy ridiculous shit he, he's going like emotionally devastating stuff he's come up with this time um, but that I, I saw him when he came when he was at the Meyerhof um, which was great for me because we could sit down I could look down on him and he played the entirety of Carrie and Lowell and then did it like a 
a encore that was maybe longer than his actual set. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to sit here, close my eyes, and just take all this in. Anyway, let's get back to poetry. I don't know what the hell we were talking about. Know, we just, we just, the poetic, poetic voice became, you're in a band, so you're cool. Yeah, so, all right, fu- yeah fuck yeah, I am. <laughs> um, so in an, in an effort to transition back to poetry, um, you want to read a poem? Read a poem. Do you, do, know, do you know Charles Wright? Sort of. Okay. You, I feel like you might, you might dig his stuff. Okay. Um, one, just look at the poem on the page. This guy. Okay. So he, he does, it's interesting that, like, I think for him, like, this in this would be considered one line. Mm-hmm. Because he has a book called Sestets, where it's all, it's like six lines, but it would be something that you'd see maybe like that, and then another two, and then something like that. So even though it's not, it's like, it's occupying the space of, it's not just like six lines in succession, that is still considered, it's like, that's the continuation of that line. So it's kind of like, um, like a running indent. Mm-hmm. Like a hanging intent, indent, except he uses it much more liberally than having it just like here. Sure. Um, so anyway, um, this is "Time Will Tell" by Charles Wright, um, and I've I think that I may have read this before in a very crappy Southern accent because um, I hear it in my head as like a, somebody from Georgia speaking it, um, but I'm not going to do that this time because I have not practiced, and you know, fuck it. Um, so this is "Time Will Tell." Time was when time was not, and the world an uncut lawn ready for sizing. We looked and took the job in hand. Birds burst from our fingers, cities appeared, and small towns in the interim. We loved them all. In distant countries, tides nibbled our two feet on pebbly shores with their soft teeth and languorous tongues. Words formed and flew from our fingers. We listened and loved them all. Now, finitude looms like antimatter. Not this and not that. And everywhere, like a presence one bumps into, oblivious, unwittingly. Excuse me, I beg your pardon. But time has no pardon to beg, no excuses. The wind in the meadow grasses, the wind through the rocks, bends and breaks whatever it touches. It's never the same wind in the same spot, but it's still the wind, and it blows in its one direction, northwest to southeast, an ointment upon the skin, a little saliva, time with its murderous gums and pale, windowless throat, its mouth pressed to our mouth, pushing the breath in, pulling it out. Yeah, damn. That is so. This this probably will be another poem that I that I continue, constantly go back to. But like I don't, like I don't, I don't. I when I grow up, I want to be a combination of um, when I grow up as a poet. Air quotes. <laughs> I want to I want to be a amalgamation of Mary Oliver and Charles Wright because that like I don't I don't understand how he got from where he was to where he went, like where he arrived at, and like mm-hmm. that in. The thing that made me think of this was the kind of like the ending of song where it, it arrives at this really like heavy kind of almost um, like no country for old men feeling type of a place where you're just sort of left looking at this world or you're suddenly you're dropped into this world and you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is the truth. And it's both like 
beautiful and heartbreaking and sad and hard and but it's like it's like this is the way that things are mm-hmm. um, so I, I will say that my own like my own personal like interests and passions when I heard this poem it just sort of and I have no idea you know how what Charles Wright was thinking when he wrote this poem but it also just it screams to me someone who has read about geology and the well I'll you know personally like the effect <coughs> of and I mentioned John McPhee uh, a million years ago uh, <laughs> who writes about a lot of different things but including geology and and, and the, the effect that getting into geologic time has on your brain because <laughs> you know we just don't even really have the language you know to say that something is far away like my home is far away from here yeah well Saturn is far away from mm-hmm. here um, and when you read about the, the geologic record when you kind of read about time like in, how, on that scale yeah, how long it I takes mean, for shit that is just there's something you know time has no pardon you know or just yeah. the wind in the meadow grasses the wind through the rocks I mean I'm gonna literal, I'm literalizing this too much it's not helpful in terms of reading this poem but just that kind of you know like to me this poem could be a research poem that is born from that sort of thing right yeah. like that and that that's how it sort of would speak to me in that sense of making sense of that which you cannot really make sense of and maybe that's sort of why poetry a little bit but um you know that's like just just hinting at that close getting so close to to something that we can't really comprehend yeah and like the so the thing that that floored me when i first read this poem was the um like the last the last i guess like two and a half lines with the um time with its murderous gums and pale windowless throat its mouth pressed to our mouths pushing the breath in pulling it out like that like the the description and the um like the anthropomorphizing of time in that way, which is a way that I've like I've never I've read a, I've read a lot of poems that have that like try to to personalize or humanize time, but I've never read something in that effect where it's like, oh God, it's like it it's like Uncanny Valley. It's so close to like my understanding. It's like yeah, this is this is really this is what it does, and it's like that's really unsettling to think about, and so like that you just kind of hit in this place. You're like oh I'm gonna have to and like for this it's like i'm gonna have to sit here and think about that for just like process this for a little bit as it kind of ricochets around inside of me yeah well thinking about just the you know as a not as a non-religious person uh thinking that last line about pushing the breath in and pulling it out and just kind of taking away all of the like self-actualization of of humans and it's like well no you're just you're here it's not it's ultimately a neutral thing that you're here or you're not and um i got got closest to that feeling not actually through poetry but by reading john mcphee annals of the of the of the former world and it's where it just it's it's like a thousand and it's a million pages long and it's way too dense and it's not gentle to the reader but once you get into it you're just it has a sort of terrifying effect of of 
zooming out to the edge of your ability to zoom out. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, when me- it, the metaphor of if you hold your hand, if you hold your arms out wide and they symbolize the timeline of Earth. Oh, you yeah. Know, hum- humans on Earth is the barest shave of your fingernail. You yeah, know? like if you if you have a... Um... If a twelve-month calendar is the the history of the universe, that like humans only showed up in like the last fifty-nine, like fifty-nine seconds, yeah, fifty-nine seconds, like the the very barest like last little bit of the year, or even with when when you're when he's talking about you know the kind of the 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 geology that we do know Mm -hmm. that ultimately only makes up about a quarter. Of of the earth of of, of, the, of the length of time the earth has existed, so three quarters of the earth's existence is completely unknowable yeah. and will never be known. And, and it's well, barring time travel, which yeah. I'm working on. There's there's a really like the ending of this poem, and and I think a lot of really effectual um, writing or really effectual like artistic um, expression is stuff that taps into the kind of like the the vastness of what's going on around you and the kind of gross impersonalness of what's going on around you cuz like with the whole like with time going back to that that like you know when you're born like it's time like pushing the breath inside of you and when you die it's a taking it out of you and it's like there's really no like you have no control over that you have no say one way or another when this is going to happen it's just sort of you know like you are part of the cycle. And I think people like to draw comfort from the fact that, um, that there is something personal or something knowable or something like, um, that there's, there's a reason for things happening on that cycle versus it just being a cycle and just sort of like, it's going to do what it does. And, you know, like if you're, if you're on it at this point, you're going to come up and then you come down and that's it. Um, I don't know, like there's a kind of almost like a, like a Lovecraftian sort of existential terror when it comes to like coming face to face with the fact that like, and I think that, I mean, existentialism is an entire philosophy built out of the whole sort of like looking at the world or looking at the things like the mechanism behind the world and being like, oh shit, none of this matters. And it's, it's, it was, it's been interesting to me that in the West you have this whole sort of like existential dread and like. Oh my God! We have to fit. Like, what are we? It's like none of this. Blah, 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 blah. And then more of like the Eastern philosophies that I've studied. Like they, it's like yeah. It's like okay. It's like you, yeah. That's yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. And then you just kind of. It's like okay. Well, you just get on with it. You know. There was a, I think it was on NPR. On NPR, it may have been like a, a midday, um, or a Diane Reem. I don't know. But they were talking about. Um, how uh, people who grow up or like culturally are um, are ensconced in religions that are binary, like um, most of like the monotheistic religions, have a much more difficult time dealing with like uncertainty or the just the sort of like the great unknowables. Whereas people who grew up in more like polytheistic or more um, religions or belief systems that have a lot more gray area are much more capable and adapted to dealing with like yeah okay it's like i'm never i'm never gonna know that all right you know you just kind of just kind of get on with it Mm -hmm. um since we are drawing up to two hours um i'm gonna ask you 
one of the one of the questions that I'm asking everybody. Okay. If you have the vocabulary to describe it, what does your internal landscape look like? <laughs> oh man. Um <laughs> Uh, another one that I that I chewed over in my brain and, and, and talked out a little bit with my partner. So there's a little bit of polish to this, but not too much, I promise. No, no. Um, actually, I'll just tell you what I first answered when 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 I first thought about this. I said out loud, my intern my internal landscape is is static and and exi- and anxiety and like being caught in between radio channels. To which Lynn said, that's not a landscape. That's not a physical <laughs> well, thing. That's all, un- like, radio static is not no, visible. Well, and I thought, well, not to the human eyes. No, yes. I don't know. Um, I, in preface, or before you get into the, the more polished <laughs> answer, um, I would, for me with landscape, it, it's just like, whatever it is that you, whatever comes to mind when you think of what exists on like the, in, the insides of you, like whatever your yeah. internal mechanism is. Yeah. No. Um, and Cause like my partner, um, you know, in Fantasia when they, I think they do like the Beethoven and it's just like a bunch of colors and like kind of abstract, like mm-hmm. colors and stuff. Hers is when they get to the scene where it's kind of like hazy, like cloud covers and these little like, uh, gold, like real quick moving like things moving through it that's hers that's what hers looks like Hmm. um sarah lynn's was like a geode (laughs) um but anyway yeah no i i i I think i first thought of it as something like static or overlapping channels and things it if if it were more a traditional landscape (laughs) it would be definitely mountainous i love i love me some mountains okay um with some, oh, I'm blanking on. I'm blanking. On, so, so it's both beautiful and per, there's some precariousness to it for sure. Some, okay. some, some danger, and um, I mean, it's a lot of it exists and uh, some of it's collage too. Um, mm. p- pastiches of things. Um, I'll t- I'll mention music a little bit. I really love the music of the books. Yes, I was about. I was gonna ask you. Yes. I was gonna. Oh, yes. oh, fuck! Whatever their um, whatever the song is that the the music video is like the words and like the images. I haven't seen. Actually, I haven't seen any of their music videos. Oh, I'm sure they probably fuck. make some really good ones. But um, I just I love that kind of idea of collage. And I I if if I were a good enough graphic designer, I could probably make a digital collage. I do love making digital collages. Uh, so yeah, mountains with some. With some edge to them, some little bit of precariousness. Beautiful though, definitely a, at least one huge valley. Cause I write about valley a lot, valleys a lot. So. Okay. So yeah, that's what I got for you. Uh, okay. It so I. <coughs> I think that I mentioned, um. The reason that I, that I'm doing this on some other podcasts, but if you don't know, um, when I was talking with Shreya. The, the topic of internal landscapes came up and I mentioned what mine was um, which is um, like Badlands style prairie just like big open expanse with maybe a couple of like trees ooh just... I want that one now too <laughs> <laughs> but like and I've it, it took me a while to realize that um, so it's like I feel 
great amount of distance on the inside of me. And I, I think that it, it manifests itself in different ways, but I, and I've been trying to, I think that it all kind of comes, it all stems like all the, all the, the things that I've noticed in the facets of it, I think all stem from like what the landscape is for me. Um, and there is occasionally, um, a log with a fire pit. And there is occasionally a room, like a little kind of small abode looking thing that when you go, when you open up, when you open the door, there is a very spartanly um, furnished room with like a bed, a nightstand, um, and like a lamp, and I think maybe a desk and a chair. Um, there is a window that is partially open. There are curtains. There's always a breeze through it, and it's always like dusk in the room or like like the blue hour um but there's a there's like a closet in that room that opens up to like an expansive like crazy fucking expansive just like all the rooms of me exist in this one little thing um but those aren't there all the time um and sometimes i am the landscape sometimes i'm walking on the landscape and sometimes i'm watching myself wander around the landscape so there's that that weird sort of but it's always like just big open nothing so i told her this and she was like wow and then she told me what hers was which was like a a sci-fi planet that's populated by other people and I, like that to me blew my mind <laughs> that like i mean i've a luxury a school punch my goodness yeah and like and i because all of my experiences with my eternal landscape has been it's either unpopulated or i'm wandering around in there mm -hmm. um i never thought that there would be like it would be possible for there to be like other people <laughs> in this landscape. But, and she was like, they they all had distinctive voices. She all like had names for all of them. And I'm, I was wondering, they made me think about one, just like what the hell other people's internal landscapes look like. So that's why I asked the, that's why I asked the question. But it also made me wonder like if people that are more given towards writing fiction, um, have internals that are populated by other people. Um, or like, like if if that lends itself to being able to hear voices or like flush out characters that are not necessarily. It's like, there's been a couple times that I've written stuff with like actually deal with characters, and it really is. It's like I'm not. It feels as if I'm eavesdropping on conversations. Like I'm. It's a very limited third person omniscient um, because it's come like these, this dialogue and this stuff is coming to me as if I'm listening to other people talk and it's like, I have no idea what the hell their motivation is. I'm just getting what they're doing and what they're saying. Um, cause we're so internal. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> we'll just go with that. Um, but that's Shreya was, if you're listening, Shreya, you were the impetus. She was the impetus for me asking everyone after her what their internal landscape was like. I should have like. guessed. Shreya is amazing. You should all, yeah, you should go listen. You should go listen to that podcast, and then find her on various degrees of social media, and tell her hi. Or <laughs> and other... find her book of poems. Dic oh yeah, dictionary. Yeah, which is just such a phenomenal collection. It's just very special and important, and you should get it. Yeah. Um. So the book's song is "Smells Like Content." Okay. So when we're when we're done with the podcast, I'll show you the the um. The music video of it because i think okay. that you would enjoy it but that's Sweet. when you when you were talking about um like what you do with the guitarist with prince mm -hmm. um not that prince, the other prince. <laughs> yes um, unfortunately i have a, I have a collaborative project with the ghost of prince <laughs> um but when you were saying it's like the improvisation and of that it's like that's what 
that song by the books is what made me think of it. Mm. So cool. Um, but since we are almost at two hours, um, and I'm sure that you have other, thing, other things that you want to do tonight. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a homebody. I'm going to go <laughs> home and probably go to sleep. Like, yeah. um, I think that we hit... So this, this is why I love um, the kind of conversational organicness of the podcast. Um, because it, it, in just talking with people, and I don't know if it's because I, I tend to send out my questions in advance, so there's like... They're in, they're in the thoughts of the people that I talk to. Uh, or they're they're on the insides, but in the general just conversating with people, like we hit most of the things that I was going to ask, and there was mm-hmm. only a couple times that, like I specifically wanted to know sure. things. But other than that, you know, it's like we, we it's like I was checking things off. You did a great job. Um, so that being said, as is customary, um, when I end podcasts, is there anything that you want to ask me? And it's like mm. across the board, whatever. Have you ever written down a line of poetry or even potentially a, a full poem during a podcast? During a podcast? Um, no. Okay. Just because in terms of people reading poetry, talking about poetry, that often can be such a catalyst for my own brain and I'll want to like write down something. Yes, I think... Um, I am not going to say that it probably won't happen... Um, but I think I, I, typically when my poetry happens, there needs to be a lot of like, um, stuff gestates for me. Um, Mm -hmm. I think I may have explained this in other podcasts, but, um, there's not a whole lot of any given point in time. There's not a whole lot of conscious thought happening in my head. Um, I actually have gotten to the point where it's difficult for me to remember how to actually consciously think about stuff, um, which is a very weird thought process to go through when you're consciously thinking about how to consciously think about things that you... But anyway, (laughs) um, it feels like there's a lot going on in either my subconscious or my unconscious or some weird melding of the two that's constantly churning and constantly figuring things out that I just don't have access to or very, very limited access to. Um, So most of my poems come from the kind of just like something will happen to me or I'll experience or see something or read something and then it'll just like sink down into the kind of the mire of the unconscious and just hang out there for a while and then we'll eventually if it pops back up we'll eventually just kind of come back up as a sort of more or less like artifact of a poem that's just sort of like here we go (laughs) um so with the podcasting so with the poetry, I, I tend to need a lot of sort of like unincorporated time to just let the, un, like not be actively not conscious, actively not actively thinking about things and letting the unconscious kind of just do whatever it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so with podcasting, I'm usually um, more engaged or like I'm, when I write poetry, there tends to be a little bit of like distance or detachment from like the present. Mm-hmm. Um so when I podcast, I tend to try to be, or I try to be present and engaged in what's happening, which is kind of like it, it shuts off that sort of, um, whatever is like percolating underneath. Um, so I, I imagine that there'll probably be a point where I will write something in response to a podcast, but like, as I'm doing it, um, I think that it would be difficult for something to like break through, um, 
it's almost like I shut and I shut the door. Sure. Yeah. Just to have a little bit of privacy. Um, so I'm sure that there's stuff like kicking around right now, but I'm I'm more or less kind of like putting like I I closed the trunk. Yeah. It's just sort of like. Mm-hmm. I got you. Um, cool. I think. Um, although if that changes, I'm not hold you to it. <laughs> if that changes, I will let you know. You have wiggle room here. <coughs> um. I think that's it. I think that's it. Um, Thank you so much for for having me. Yeah, I'm glad that we finally got the chance to talk after two months of trying to or or trying to trying to organize slash being okay that plans were canceled and circling back around and then oh the holidays and and now we're here and this I'm glad. Yeah. Um, As is also customary, I tend to let my guests or maybe not let what might be too generous of a word, um, I tend to foist upon the outro oh, okay. on my guests. So if there's any, any parting wisdom or any any cool turn of phrase that you want to leave our oh, listeners gosh. with. <laughs> no, nothing about me is cool. Is cool. Um, well, I just... Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting poetry, for supporting wildly digressive discussions of poetry. Um, that's That's really special and important and I just I thank you. Cool. Um, my thanks as well. I don't I don't mean to, to jump on that, but whatever. Um, yeah. So this has been episode seven of So Poetry. Um, it was more likely so it was re- this is recorded um, like a day or two after I did episode six, but I'm probably not going to upload this until like next weekend or so. Um, so there'll be a little bit of a, a gap between the recording time and the uploading time. Um, so hopefully anything that we mentioned will still be timely. <laughs> um, but to not, uh, to not cheapen or to not go out on, uh, what Andrew said, thank you for listening. Thank you for the support. And I will talk to y'all next time. <laughs>